You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Paul has been working now for several weeks as we've gone through this to kind of establish an argument for the superiority of the promise made to Abraham over the law passed down to Moses. You'll remember that the argument that he's making to, to begin with is that the promise to Abraham came before the law, 430 years before the law, and he said that because the covenants of God cannot be annulled or changed, that if the promise came first, then the function of the law could not have been to change the covenant or to change the promise, to annul it, to add to it, to change the conditions by which we attain it. Remember this? And then after he preached on all of that, he asked a question. He said, so why then the law? If the purpose of the Mosaic law was not to change the terms by which we receive the promise given to Abraham, what was the purpose of the law? And last week, we, we paused and we, and we let Paul explain to us one of the uses of the law. And what he said to us was that the law was given in order to imprison everything under sin that the law was given in order to increase the trespass, that the law was given to be our captor. And I said, we weren't going to go any further, but we were just going to let that land. Because a lot of us turned to the law to be our freedom when one of the uses of the law, according to Paul, was to be our captor. And I wanted us to sit and really think through the cognitive dissonance required to take a thing that God gave to be a captor and try to ask it to give us freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, and this whole letter is about this doctrine of justification by faith alone, faith being the agency by which we are united with Christ. And this morning, Paul is going to spend a lot more time talking to us about the nature of our union with Christ and all of its benefits, but he's also going to give clarity to an additional use of the law. So again, to summarize last week, we said that the law cannot give life, that it can only reveal sin. We said of the law that it cannot liberate us from sin because, in fact, it imprisons all things under sin. We said that the law did not come straight from God, but that it was given by angels through an intermediary, as opposed to the promise given to Abraham where God himself spoke it directly over Abraham without the help of a mediator. We said that the law does not bind us forever, but only until the coming of the heir of promise. So this was where Paul led us last week, but then we read this week that the law was not merely temporary, but that the law was preparatory, that it was leading to something else, something better, that the purpose of the law was to reveal sin and that, in fact, as it increases the trespass, so the whole world became imprisoned by it. That God placed the world under the law in order to convict the world of sin and to hold them captive to its guilt. So the law served that function, not to justify, only to condemn. It cannot make us righteous. It can only lock us up in a prison of sin cannot make you right with God. It can only show you how not right with God you are. 
but by showing us that it cannot save. Paul argues that it compels us to look to the heir of the promise, our Savior Jesus. Luther said it like this. He said, the law does contribute to justification, not because it itself justifies, but because it impels one to the promise of grace and makes it sweet and desirable. Therefore, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true function and use, namely, that it is a most useful servant impelling us to Christ. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law is to make men not better, but worse, that it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, yet frightened, worn down, and may finally long for grace. So purpose number one given by Paul for the use of the law is to trap us and imprison us in our sin, to reveal to us our sin, to even increase the trespass, to bring us to the lowly confession that says, I cannot work my way out of this, to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the air of the promise, Jesus Christ. And this week, he introduces us to another use of the law. I would say this isn't an additional use as much as it's a clarifying of the first use of the law. So all of that sounds like really bad stuff, and yet in doing that, Paul is saying it was actually also doing really good stuff. And he starts to switch his language from prison to guardian. He talks to us about the law as our guardian. Now before faith came, verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. I'm going to skip ahead. What I mean is that the heir, chapter 4, verse 1, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. It's in the same way that we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I'll fill in the rest later. So Paul has now moved off of prison language to guardian language. He said the, one of the functions of the law was to be our guardian. G.G. Finlay, he wrote a commentary on Galatians in, in the 1800s, and uh, he said it like this. He said, the law was all the while standing guard over its subjects, watching and checking every attempt to escape but intending to hand them over in due time to the charge of faith. The law posts its ordinances like so many sentinels around the prisoner's cell. The cordon is complete. He tries again and again to break out, but the iron circle will not yield. But deliverance will yet be his. The day of faith approaches. It dawned long ago in Abraham's promise. Even now its light shines into that dungeon, and he hears the word of Jesus, Thy sins are forgiven thee. Go in peace. Law, that stern jailer, has often, after all, been a good friend if it, was reser if it has reserved him for this. It prevents the sinner escaping to his futile and elusive freedom. So what Finlay saw 
to summarize that for you, is that somehow the imprisonment of the law was ultimately for our good in such a way that it's not some, some, some cruel jailer, but that it was a loving act of God to keep his people bound in order that they would not be able to break free to a futile and elusive freedom until true freedom could be brought to them. Not through the law, but apart from the law. The word guardian that we read in this passage to describe the law is actually the Greek word for pedagogue. A, a pedagogue in Greek culture was a slave that was appointed to, a, to be a child's protector. They would be appointed around age six, and they would walk with the child all the way through their adolescence so that the child was under constant care and protection and supervision and even instruction. He was partly a babysitter, partly a chaperone, partly a disciplinarian or a probation officer, where you can go, how long you can stay there, what you must do while you are there. Holding the rules over you, pointing out to you when you are breaking them, even chastising and disciplining you when you do. Ancient drawings usually showed the pedagogues carrying a rod or a cane to administer punishment or discipline to the child. And like any good pedagogue, eventually the law worked itself out of a job. When the child comes to age, Paul is saying, there is no longer a need for that constant supervision because something has changed. And in this case, he says that the child is not merely a child, but that the child was an heir. And that the date had to come when the heir would come into the receiving of his inheritance. So let's try to understand this together. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. Going back a verse, the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we would be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian because in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So he says the changing event that took you out from underneath the guardian was that you were baptized into Christ, that there was a changing that happened. That while you were heirs according to the promise, that the Lord had his, his, his ultimate sight in view over time, he knew what he was going to do, that you were going to flee from faith and all of its promises at every chance that you could get. I had a friend say it to me in terms of, of a dog. I don't think you guys are dogs. I'm going to give it to you anyway because I think it was good. He said, it's like you are taking your dog to the dog park. And you are, when you get there, you're planning to just let him run and run free. But until you get to the dog park, you keep him on a leash. Because if you take him off the leash, that dog is going to bolt, and he's going to bolt into, into traffic, and he's going to bolt into all the different things, and, because he believes that he knows what freedom is. But that you have a specific freedom in mind for him. And you're going to ensure that he gets there, and he stays within the bounds of that freedom. That the law was our guardian in that way, that the Lord God kept his people on a leash. That the law was, was, was a, a cell that entrapped them. And while they looked for every possible way to break free, that it was a stern and steady cell surrounded by jailers, imprisoned until the Christ could come. 
And when the Christ came and when, and when you received him by faith, when you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, this is the circumcision of the heart that we read about all throughout the law, that the law was going to move from something external to you that bound you to something internal to you, that the Lord God was going to write the law on your heart so that you no longer needed the constant supervision of something external to you because now you were being governed by a new identity. You'd become a son and dwelled within you was the one who gave the law, God himself within you by your baptism in the Holy Spirit. For all those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And when you put on Christ, church, when you put him on, being found in him, you became a son, an heir according to the promise. Now, when I say son, I mean adult son. I mean, I mean, grown up in Jesus. I mean, your big brother is the image that you are now walking in. He is, the, he is the engine in your heart. He is the circumcision of your heart. He is the law written on your heart. The Spirit of Christ within you, your baptism in Christ, is now what is pulling the strings. So that you're no longer under an external guardian, but that you are submitted to a new self. This is why Paul spoke in such extreme language, saying that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that the old self has died and the new has come. Do we get this portrait that we are no longer something foreign to the promise, being kept and guarded and prevented and directed and disciplined by something external to us, but that we have grown up into the promise such that we have been called sons and heirs? Do you understand what this changes? Do you understand what it changes about the way that this works? See, Paul had been arguing that all those who were sons of faith were, were the sons of Abraham, and all the promises that were made to Abraham and his offspring applied to you. Remember, we, we did like all of the mechanics of this two weeks ago when we talked about that, all, that, that when Paul had said that the promise was for Abraham's offspring, and Abraham's offspring was singular, and it wasn't Isaac, it was Jesus that the promise was, was ultimately made to, that Jesus was the offspring who was to receive all the, all the promises of the covenant given to Abraham. And so if there's just the one offspring, if there's just the one heir of the promise, how do those promises become mine? How do I become an heir if Paul is saying that there's only one heir? And he gives the answer to that in this passage when he says, by becoming one with him, one with the heir such that you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and you are as one. There is one heir of the promise, and it is Christ Jesus, and you, church, by your baptism in him, are with him, are found in him. You have put on Christ. And so he starts arguing, if you are sons of faith, then you are sons of Abraham. And now he goes so far as to say that you are, if you are sons of Abraham, that you are sons of God. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, verse 26. We are baptized into Christ. We are united with Christ. We are united in each other, to each other, in Christ. And we are now all heirs according to the promise. And that's where he then moves into this kind of, it seems like a sidetrack, doesn't it? Where he starts talking about there's no longer slave nor free or male or female or, or Jew or Greek. He says the reason that there are no longer any dividing walls of hostility between us is because we have all been, if we are in Christ, united with Christ so that there isn't you or me. There's just Christ. 
There is no Adam and JD. There is just Adam and JD in Christ, united with Christ, such that we are all one, united to the Godhead. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit taking his church upon himself. Christ in us and we in him, so that it tears down all that divides the church. We're not united by faith. We're not united by the law. We are united by Christ. And we are not just one with him. We are not just united with him. In fact, he says here, the, I think he's talking about the law. I'm uncertain. When he refers to the elementary principles of the world, it's, de- it's debated what he's talking about there. But given that he's talking about the law before and afterwards, and he's talking about that which enslaved us, he says that we were, that, that we were under in verse 3 in the same way when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And if he's referring to the law as elementary principles, he's making a further argument for the superiority of the promise to the law. That like the law is like your ABCs, and the gospel of Jesus Christ uniting you with the Father is maturity, is, is coming into the heir, or all the, the inheritance. That it's that much better. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So he said that even the Israelites, when they were under the law, although they had been set apart by God and that that God had made covenants with them and he had given them the law and all of that, that they were no different from slaves. And he's using worldly terms again to try to help us understand that. He said in in chapter 4, verse 1, that he means that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave because even though he's the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers until the date that's set by his father. So that we can say, like, in some head truth, that everything that is the Father's is mine. But in function, in reality, I don't get to touch it until the date that the Father says. I don't actually get to enjoy all that belongs to my Father as the heir until it's released to me. This is like the scandal of the story of the prodigal son, that the son would go to the Father before the date set by the Father and say, I want it now. And that when the father grants to him his inheritance ahead of the date that was set, it brings wreckage to him rather than the freedom that he was intended to enjoy. But on the date that was set by the father, he brings forth the fullness of the inheritance and he bestows it upon the heir. And when he bestows it upon the heir, we see that we move from this state of, no, I'm no different than a slave. I've got a guardian that tells me where to be and when to be there and all of that. And, and like I'm under this, I'm under this burden but that when I grow up to the age of the date set by the Father where the fullness of the inheritance is to fall upon me, where the promise becomes mine, now I am a mature son. I'm an adult son. I, I've, I, I've, I'm, I'm ready to reign with the king. I'm a, I'm a prince in the kingdom of God. And it's brought about by our redemption from under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, Paul wrote, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I think that we know how to be slaves 
but we're not always really good at knowing how to be sons. We started today a uh, session one of our new core discipleship thing that we're running on Sunday mornings. And uh, at the end, uh, Benton, who was instructing this morning, he talked to the disciples about the nature of growth in Christ, of growing up in Christ. And he said, it's not like pull this lever and I become, and then by becoming, I can now gain access to Jesus. He said, no, what it is is we are before Jesus. We, we spend time in the presence of Jesus that that transforms and renews us. And as we are transformed and renewed by being with Jesus, that then what happens is I start to walk like he walked. That the order matters the way that we think about be, belonging to Jesus. And so because we get belonging wrong, we get behavior wrong. So we think, I do in order to become, and it actually changes the motive by which we do things, and we start putting ourselves back under the law. Say, so I'm going to be a good law keeper, and if I do that, that's going to unlock the promise. And this is the whole thing that the Judaizers were teaching, the Galatians, that Paul is trying to dismantle, and this is what I want to help you guys to like continue just put to death in your thinking. That sons don't law keep their way into sonship, into the promises of the inheritance. That sons are sons. They are positionally united to their father. And as they enjoy him and experience him and encounter him and draw on his grace, it changes them such that they look more and more like him. And as, they, as their heart becomes more like his, their behaviors walk in step with that new heart. Being a son is so much different than being a slave. And I think that one of the things that Paul is arguing here in order to try to tear down that impulse to want to return to slavery is to remind you that you didn't make yourself a son. I think a lot for the Christian, for the, for the Christian legalist, the reason why we want to go back under the law is because somewhere back there, we forgot that we didn't make ourselves a son in the first place. And so we've started to believe that we need to keep ourselves a son. But Paul says that the antidote for Christian legalism is to go back to the beginning and ask the question, how exactly did you come into the promise? How exactly did you become an heir? How exactly did you become a son? What was it? Faith alone was it? And the work of another on your behalf? Is that what it was? It was Jesus coming at the fullness of time and living a perfect life for you, going to Calvary for you, laying down his life, fulfilling the perfect requirements of the law on your behalf, and then imputing his righteousness to you based on no merit of your own? But by the gift of faith alone, oh, and even that he did by the work of the Holy Spirit through regeneration, such that even your faith is not your own, that you might not boast in it, but that you can boast only in Christ. Was, is that how it worked? Oh, yeah. That's how it worked. We received adoption as sons. What I know about orphans is they don't adopt themselves. 
Orphans don't adopt themselves. You guys have heard this before maybe, but when you meet um, orphans who have been adopted, there's a, a, a period while they are learning what it's like to belong to a family where all of their behaviors indicate that, like, like legally, declaratively, the papers are signed and this is your child, but in their behaviors, there's not, it hasn't made its way into their head and heart yet. And so, and so the way that they uh, interact within this family that they've been adopted into suggests that they don't yet see themselves as sons and daughters. The question remains, yeah, like, are you going to be there tomorrow? And what about the next day? And I think there's something in this because the world has been communicating to all of us in some measure that your, that your belonging is, is directly tied to your performance. In most of the spaces that you occupy, people are communicating to you directly or indirectly that your belonging is tied to your performance. But if the function of the law was to definitively declare to you that you failed in your performance. And no matter what you do, you can't escape it because the more you try to keep the law, the more that it serves its function to show you that you can't do it. If the function of the law is to flunk you in your performance over and over and over again, then ultimately you're not going to be able to go to the Father and say, look what I did, please keep me. He took that from you. He's preventing that actively from you. And yet he calls you a son through a completely different means. A completely different means. And that means was adoption. Adoption in Christ. Do you remember when you were adopted in Christ? There are two different types of testimonies generally among Christians. One of them is my favorite one, which is the one that says, I can't remember a time that I didn't know the Lord because the Lord's faithfulness was poured out a generation before and the parents raised you in the Lord and you can't remember a day that you didn't know him. I love that testimony. And then there's another testimony where that wasn't the case. And you can tell me the day and the hour where everything changed, when you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, when you placed your faith in Christ alone for your righteousness with God. In both stories, you have a story of a father in heaven who was pouring out his grace upon you in order to make you aware of your belonging in him. Do you remember that? We put in our testimonies a lot of stock in the conversion moment such that everybody that I know, this is just true, their first instinct, if they have the first testimony, the one where I can't remember the day, is to lament that they don't have a fancy conversion story. Because we put so much stock in the moment that we became a son. And the reason is, is because we do not know how to receive the present and active ministry of Christ today. We don't know how to receive, you are receiving it, you just don't know how to receive it. 
It's like this lavish gift that's being poured out on you every single day, and you just don't even know what to do with it. You don't look at it. You don't acknowledge it. You don't even recognize where it's coming from, who it's coming from. You're attributing all the wrong things to why you're receiving it. It's because I did this or, or, or whatever. And so the goodness of your Father is being poured out on you day by day by day so that, so that like, He's testifying to you your belonging in His family over and over and over again. And when I ask you about the Father and you being His Son, we want to go back 5, 10, 15, 20 years to a moment in time rather than a relationship that we were adopted into. Because we think of our adoption primarily as like the day that the judge stamped the papers and not as the relationship that it then saved you into forevermore. So when we tell our testimonies, we, Paul encourages us to look back and think about how we became heirs and children. But then from there to compel us forward into a change in the way that we think about what that means for us now. And if we don't let that happen, then we're just going to think of the goodness of Christ as primarily something that happened way back there and something that I can look forward to receiving something way in the future, but I just have no clarity whatsoever for what this means for me today. And absent other options, I'll just hitch the law back on. And we trade in our sonship for slavery. In our heads, not positionally. Fortunately, you cannot fail your way out of sonship. Because you have been adopted, you have been declared by the Father to be His, and just like you didn't get yourself into it, you cannot fail your way out of it, and you do not perform your way into keeping it. Because you are sons, this verse 6 in chapter 4, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. He has sealed you, not just with a promise, but he has sealed you with his own spirit. Your heart has been changed because your heart has been indwelled by the spirit. You are a new creation. Nothing that you can do about it if you belong to Christ. When I think about slavery versus sonship, I was compelled in my heart to think of what uh, Jesus was thinking about when he had um, written in uh, John chapter 17, when he had his uh, high priestly prayer recorded. If you need to close your eyes to hear this prayer, to let it in, you can do that. I'm going to pray it I'm going to say it out loud, the prayer of Jesus for you right before he went to the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that, you know, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me.
and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Yet I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. And I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me And the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I think I just found like five more while I was reading it again, but I tried to make a list of all of the things that Jesus has given us in uniting us with him and making us co-heirs with him and making us sons. My list sounds like this. See if you can find more. He's given us eternal life. He's given us the Father's name. He's given us the Father's words. He's given us his own glory in us. He's given us union with the Father, Son, and Spirit and with each other. He's given us protection from evil and joy fulfilled. He's given us sanctification in the truth. He has given us his very spirit. He's given us his mission, and he's given us a room in his Father's house that we may be with him where he is and see him as he is. And there is a promise given to us in the epistles that says that on the day that we see him as he is, that we will become like him, that we will be made like him. And all of the labor that you were laboring on this side of eternity to try to conform to his image, as if that's how it works, that by the works of the flesh you conform yourself to his image. 
will be completed in a moment when you behold him for all that he is. Beholding Jesus is how we walk like him. Beholding Jesus is how we live in him. Beholding Jesus is how we enjoy him. Beholding Jesus is how we relate with him. Beholding Jesus is how we are compelled into mission with him. Beholding Jesus is how we come to believe that the Father's name has been endowed to us, that we have been adopted, and we, and, and we rightly call him Abba, Father. Beholding Jesus is how we come to understand that his glory already belongs to us. Beholding Jesus is how we have our joy fulfilled. It is how we will be protected from evil. It is where our sanctification comes from. Do you know how to be with Jesus, or do you only know how to do for him? Do you know how to be with Jesus, or do you know, only know how to perform for him? Do you know how to be with Jesus, or you, do you only know how to obey a set of rules? Christ is within you. He has endowed you with his spirit if you have been baptized in him. His nature is no longer external to you. It is internal to you. So walk in him. Delight in him. Relate to him. Experience him. Love him. Be loved by him. And then let that do all the work. Do you understand the difference? I struggle too as well. This is my appeal to the unity that we find in him in the church. And I want to land there. Right in the heart of trying to compel the Galatian church to believe this, to forsake this lesser righteousness that they were clinging to, and to believe in their adoption, he makes an appeal to their union with one another. And he says, y'all, all of you guys, this is true. So, guys, for all of us, this is true. So if I start falling back under the law, you know who I look to is somebody who has the Spirit of Christ in them to point me back to my Savior. We need each other in this function. We were given to one another in this function, and that's why I need you and you need me in actual relationship with one another. I would go so far as to say that many of us are struggling to relate to Jesus because of our refusal to relate to his people. But if you will submit yourself to the model that Christ has given us of union with him and with one another, you will find that your flourishing comes apart from the works of the flesh. And that's what I want for you. And so I'm going to pray that over you now, and I want you to pray for it for yourself as well.